You will agree with me that three is a noble number within Christianity. I say that with a bit of boldness, perhaps, because I'm referring to the likelihood that we will complete our studies on the topic of content to be a Christian this afternoon. It was, of course, the case that last Sunday I thought we were going to complete this series, but we did not, so we're content to come to it again and to take up the remainder of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Allow me just to give you the briefest of outlines of where we have been thus far. We have looked into this topic of content to be a Christian under two primary headings, the first of which was named epistemological greediness. The idea being that there is a desire for the enlargement and the advancement and the pulling to ourselves intellectually within the domain of our thoughts and our ideas that precedes anything else that also falls into the category of the kind of supposition that gain is godliness. In other words, how would one even come to that idea in the first place, except that one was thinking from one's own perspective and not humbling oneself and seeking to be taught of God to understand how life actually works. We will, in fact, return to that thought at the conclusion of this message just briefly, but that was the first main heading. The second main heading with which we have been working through the remainder of this study, is the lying logic of linking gain with godliness. And there are six subheadings beneath this general thought that seeks to elucidate how that is indeed a false orientation. Remembering, first of all, brothers and sisters, that Contentment comes from contending against covetousness. That is the first thought. Grasping and gaining is not the path to godliness. Godliness often requires releasing and reduction. And that was really the initial point that we had when we think about the opposition of what The supposition of someone was that Paul refers to, saying that some suppose that gain is godliness, and Paul is contending against that covetous orientation with a but. Godliness with contentment is actually where the real riches are, where where the real gain is. So again, that's the first thing that reveals that it is a lying logic that associates gain with godliness. The second thing that manifests this is the idea that contentment is godliness plus nothing but God. So we're going to begin this afternoon with the third through sixth headings. Allow me just to state them to you briefly here, and then we'll take them up in order. The third subheading beneath the general idea of looking into the lying logic of linking gain with godliness is this. It's found in the ninth and 10th verses of 1 Timothy 6, and it is that contentment comes through crucifying cravings. The fourth idea is found in verses 11 and 12. And it is the exhortation to be content with contending for the faith. The fifth idea is out of verses 13 through 16, another exhortation. And it is to be content to confess Christ. And then finally, we will end by looking into the 17th through 21st verses. And we will be looking into this exhortation, be content to be charged and chastened. Very well then, we will return 
to the third idea, which is found in the ninth and tenth verses of First Timothy chapter six. And it is the idea that contentment comes through crucifying cravings. Let's read verses nine and ten. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's note initially here the series of experiences that the one that Paul is referring to goes through. They start by willing to be rich. They are those that are wishing to be rich. That is indeed the sense of the Greek term that Paul uses here. That leads them to the love of money. Now let's make something very clear here. No one loves money simply because they love the paper or the coin. They love money because of what money does for them. Money enables one to enlarge one's reach, to enlarge one's grasp of life, to enlarge one's name, to enlarge one's power. Money enables one to gain is the idea. So the love of money, though it certainly is a very true manifestation of the disposition of heart that Paul is speaking about here is in a fuller sense, it's the love of gain. Because if we weren't using money to arrive at more for ourselves, we'd be loving whatever that thing was, political position, or loving, you know, simply houses, for example, so that you could trade real estate to gain further influence and various other means of having more for yourself. So they start by willing to be rich, to enrich themselves. That leads them to finding what are the means and the mechanisms? What do I need to do? How do I need to shape my life in order to gain? And that can be anything from the secular to the religious. In all sorts of venues, there are different paths that people look into in order to gain for themselves. Some, indeed, wind up in ministry because of the love of money. And it is a means by which they can gain for themselves. But their experience ends, as Paul says, by piercing themselves through with many sorrows. Now, they, of course, don't think that that will wind up being the case. They believe that they should be looking out for themselves. They don't believe in the crucified life. They don't believe in the idea of dying to live. But doesn't that language sound ominously like being crucified, piercing themselves through with many sorrows? Dear brothers and sisters, sooner or later the death of self is going to occur. It is either going to occur through willing submission to God and by the spirit by which that death of self is then followed by a rising of the life of Christ within our beings by the Holy Spirit, or there'll be a very real end to your self-willed existence as one experiences the judgments of God in time or in eternity. Now, the central thought here when talking about contentment comes through crucifying cravings goes beyond, of course, just wanting to accumulate more money. Remember that this is something we all need to think about because Paul tells each one of us, he includes himself in the statement that we all once lived in various lusts and pleasures. He says to Titus in chapter 3 and verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, 
living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I think it's arguable, just as in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul locates love for advancement, this lust, this will-be-ness. I think that as Paul makes the point that at the center of this wrong way of living is this love of gain, as he says in the 10th verse. It's the root of all evil. So too, in what Paul says in Titus, I think the center of the issues that he lists here is the desires and the pleasures that are driving us, that we haven't brought into the submission of Christ or we haven't crucified. And so what happens as you spin out from these diverse lusts and pleasures, it spins into foolish living. It spins into disobedience. It spins into deceptions in relationships, breaking down and bringing negativity and corrosiveness into relationships, malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I want to elucidate this ultimately by comparing two biblical men, one of whom was one who lived to serve others and to love others, the other who, though seemingly came into a religious experience, never dealt with that root of all evil, that desire for gain, that need to be noticed and to be preeminent, to be seen, and so on. But I do think that I will proceed thinking about these two biblical men by using an example that may not be quite as true to history, and you might even say scripture, I suppose, but it's a colorful illustration that most of you will be familiar with, and it makes the point in a more traditional sense as it's tied directly with money. It is Bunyan's way of speaking about what might have happened to Demas, who once walked with Paul, who once served God's people, but evidently there was some root of self-desire within him that spun him out into foolish decisions. It spun him out into deception. Maybe he had malice and envy against Paul. He may even have struggled with hate in his heart as he realized that Paul was in disagreement with him and wouldn't support him in the way that he wanted to be supported. And ultimately, if he did not repent, this turn in his life towards self-gain would pierce him through with many sorrows. I'll read you just a little snippet out of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as he relays to us this character that he calls Demas. He says that as Christian and Hopeful and Demas are moving along toward the celestial city, they come to a little hill named Lucre. And within this hill, there is a silver mine, a silver mine, a place to get silver out of. And Demas says, here is a silver mine and some digging in it for treasure. If you will come with a little pains, you may richly provide for yourselves. Hopeful says, let us go see. Not I, said Christian. I have heard of this place before now, and how many have there been slain. And beside that, treasure is a snare to those that seek it, for it hinders them in their pilgrimage. Then Christian called to Demas, saying, Is not the place dangerous? Has it not hindered many in their pilgrimage? Demas responds, Not very dangerous, except to those that are careless. But withal, he blushed as he spoke. I will now present to you these two biblical individuals, and you can remember that Demas at least blushed when he spoke. And we can search our own hearts as to to what degree are we repentant and go beyond just blushing when we discover that we are allowing ourselves to be driven by our lusts and our pleasures. And that's introducing fears and foolishness and deception and hate and whatever else. And we're, as a result, not content just to be a Christian and be in God's service. We are bringing ourselves and others into many piercing sorrows. Let's compare the man Philip 
with the man Simon Magus. You'll need to turn to Acts chapter 8 in order to do this. We certainly won't be spending a great deal of time thinking about all the details of this passage, but allow me to just sort of acquaint you with what's going on with Philip by first reaching into the backstory of this man's life before we get to Acts chapter 8. Philip was one of the seven servants of the church in Jerusalem. Those who were, here's the language, appointed to a duty. Philip was one of the men. One of the other men was a man by the name of Stephen. And while we can only refer to some of these thoughts with not a great deal of detail, I trust that stating these things and thinking about them will challenge and edify your hearts. Because there's much to learn in what I'm about to set before you. Two of the men who began their ministries by accepting the call to simply serve. To do what? To distribute means to the widows. These two men in your Bibles, for a lesson to all of us, are presented as two of the most anointed and blessed and used men of God in the New Testament. And how did they begin their careers? And I know even to say their careers, their careers is to go against what they were all about. But you'll allow me to tell it the way I want to say it. And you can realize that we're just communicating here. And I'm trying to say, how did they begin their ministries? They obviously had abilities. One only needs to look at Stephen, a man full of faith and power. And I'll be saying a little bit more about Philip. These men obviously had abilities. In fact, that's why they were chosen. They had such great abilities. They were chosen to serve. Because in the Christian church, whatever your giftings and callings are, you should be content to simply be a Christian. And you should be available to be used of God in whatever way the Spirit ordains. That's the nature of true Christianity. Over against those who feel like, I must be more recognized. I must work my way up the ecclesiastical ladder in order to prove to myself or others that I am godly, that I am approved of God. There's a sense in which Stephen and Philip were potentially ready to be moved up into some manifest position that came with entitlement, you know, a title and so on. And perhaps you could say that instead they were brought down to simply be servants. But I'm sure that they didn't see it that way. Because what was he doing? He was doing exactly what the Christian church is taught to do. How unlike the world should the Christian church be? It should be a place where this idea of gain, gain, gain is somehow in the realm of godliness that we are able to recognize that God will bless His people, but we don't get caught up in the old lusts, and we're equating our lusts and our drives with this idea of blessing from God, and advancement, and personal recognition, and the like. What was Philip doing? He was first proving himself within the house of God, and being found blameless. How do you be found blameless when you're proving yourself as Philip was as a deacon? As 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 speaks of. You find yourself blameless by number one, first of all, welcoming that opportunity with open arms and say, Thank you, Lord, if I can just put the chairs away, if I can just sweep the floor, if I can just pray in my closet, if I can just direct the cars where to park or anything in that direction. Lord, thank you that I can serve your kingdom. Thank you that I can just hand out food. Thank you that I can just produce literature for the church. Thank you that I can distribute to the widows with all of my knowledge of the word, with my anointing, with my walk with God. Thank you that I can serve the widows. And he welcomed that with open arms and he continued it faithfully and he never complained about it and he never pushed to move up into Peter's position. 
That is what 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 says. Let these first be proved. Let those who are potentially men within the assembly that can find a place of usefulness in God's church first be proved as deacons and let them be found blameless in that capacity. But having been found blameless by Almighty God, you know, you don't know the day-to-day details of Philip's life and service. You don't know how long he did that. You don't know the difficulties he had to work through. You don't know the things that he had in his spirit that he wasn't in a position to share at that point because he was serving the widows. You don't know any of that. But there came a point when the Lord moved Philip into a different ministry. And Philip becomes the first to take the gospel to Samaria. Philip is directed by an angel to share the gospel with an Ethiopian official returning from Jerusalem. I mean, these things roll off the tongue quite easily, don't they? And since we're not teaching on Philip's life, we're going to have to let it be. So I won't reemphasize every single point, but it's tempting to say, you know, he's the one. When the gospel was to go from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria, Philip was the one. Who? The one who first raised his hand or accepted the invitation. Will you serve these widows? He said, yes, I will. Thank you, Lord God. And I will serve them to the best of my capacity. And then God said, you're going to be the first one to bring the message to Samaria. And then I'm going to send an angel to you. And an angel is going to direct you, direct you to bring the gospel to perhaps a Jewish Ethiopian or Jewish official who was in Ethiopia, however that all works out. But he was returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You know, Philip gives the gospel to him. And then in the 40th verse, we read that Philip was Urisco. Did you ever hear the English word Eureka? It comes from the Greek verb Urisco. And it means to appear, to be found. He was found on the Mediterranean coastal town of Azotus because God supernaturally transported him there. And we're told that he journeys north along the coast and settles in Caesarea by the sea. And he ministers and preaches the gospel in that region. And later in Acts chapter 21, we read that Paul actually visits Philip in Caesarea by the sea. And Philip has four unmarried daughters that are perhaps prophetesses. They at least prophesy that much we know because it's said. Well, here again, isn't it a wonderful thing to think about this man's life who first experienced as it relates to the world's measurements, reduction, reduction in the capacity of service. He first became the servant of all. And then the Lord used him in all of these marvelous ways. And he winds up with four daughters that love the Lord and prophesy and you know, the Lord gets him, gets him a house. It's, we're told he has a house in Caesarea by the sea. You know, there is a Caesarea Philippi. It's over by the foot of Mount Hermon. And uh, there's a certain way in which we can say this is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, if you're following what I'm trying to say, because the Lord had a place for Philip by the sea in Caesarea. And uh, he served the Lord faithfully there. Well, if we go over to Acts chapter 5 excuse me, Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, we read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. I mean, imagine that. Once upon a time, he was just helping the widows. You know what I'm trying to say? And, you know, he, he had the ability to do this, evidently, or at least potentially. But now it was the time, because he was faithful in serving God. Now God brought him to Samaria. And now he has the attention of the people with one accord, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with loud voices came out of many that were possessed and them uh, possessed with them excuse me and many that were paralyzed and that were lame were healed and there was great joy in that city but there was a certain man called Simon which before time 
in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was Magus, that he himself was somebody great. So we're introduced now to Simon Magus. I've already sufficiently introduced you to Philip and explained the nature of his life manifested before you the life of a man who entered into religion and allowed himself, if you will, to be reduced to the place of a servant of the church. Simon Magus has a different entrance into religion. Here is a man that prior to embracing Christianity in some fashion, clearly, as we are talking about here, he had cravings. He gave himself out to be someone great. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted people to view him as someone they really need to put their attention on him, to give him accolades and to be his groupies in many respects. That's the nature of what was going on in his heart. Let me bring you to the 13th verse. We're told... Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. Now, you see, we're talking about that we need to be content to be Christians. We're told that he believed. Signs and wonders were continuing in Philip's life. But what was happening here, as we later realize, is the wondering that was going on in Simon's heart was, I wonder if I could do that too, and if I could do what Philip does, would that get me more attention, and would more people like me and love me and say how wonderful I am? That's what was going on in Simon's life, even though he was embracing Christianity as the text itself says at some level. So then the apostles come down from Jerusalem, Peter and John, and they pray for the brethren to receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid their hands on these believers in Samaria. They received the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 18, we read, When Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. This is a foolishness. This is a malice. And this is a deception that is remarkable to behold, but not as uncommon as you might think. It just appears so uncommon to your eyes now because you know how this plays itself out. But this sort of instinctive reaction still happens within the confessing Christian church where those who come in and embrace Christianity at some level, male or female, when they see God using other people, they don't view that as a straightforward blessing and as an indication that that life, if this is the right sort of manifestation that you're seeing and has the right earmarks to it, and the man or the woman is godly. I'm not talking about females in ministry at this point. I'm just saying, however they're functioning within the church, if they are godly men and women. They're not perceiving that what comes before that is humility and mercy and justice and knowing what the Lord thy God requires of thee. And they have gone through the training in order to come to that place of anointing. No, they see that like Simon Magus, Simon who would be great and grain more for himself. They see it as an opportunity. They see it as something that they would like to have for themselves. They would like to bring this to themselves. I want to teach that class. I want to have that perspective. I want to say those things. I want to share that song. I want to be in the front row. I want to whatever. That's what Simon Magus did. And it's an amazing thing that he goes right to holy men. 
Peter and John and says, here's some money. Will you sell me this power? But Peter said unto him, listen to this. You're going to be pierced through with many sorrows, Simon. Simon, who would be great. Simon, who thinks that gain will prove that you're godly. I'm some great one in the house of God. Thank God we have the voice of Peter to help us to see how foolish this is. He says, you will be ultimately pierced through with many sorrows. Thy money perish with thee because you thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have no place in the kind of things you're talking about. You have no place in this whole realm that Peter and John walk in, Simon. You're out of place. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart... You see, he hadn't crucified the cravings. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Someone might think, well, he's going to grow and mature. Actually, I'm not quite in favor of that analysis. I'm not altogether against it. We all have to grow and mature in our various directions. But it's not like every new man who comes to church is a Simon Magus, or it certainly shouldn't be that way. It may be more and more that way in our culture, or at least in a culture of some setting and situation. But brothers and sisters, when you're saved from a life of sin and you have indeed repented in your heart for who you are before you met Christ. There should be a dying of self-interest that is associated with that. You put to death those lusts and cravings that were your former life. And you understand the language of service. And you're drawn with a deep desire to forward the house of God and the word of God and the people of God. Thank God that that also does occur when Jesus saves people or the church would never advance. It'd only be environment of bickering and, and jockeying for position and, and division and, and squabble forever and ever. And the church would never advance. It'd just be always a political body working out their various desires and aligning themselves in various ways to advance themselves like Simon was here. Let me use my money and see if I can get ahead and all these sorts of things. What is going on here, brothers and sisters, is a lack of crucifying cravings. And therefore, there isn't the contentment in simply being a Christian. That's why I compare, incidentally, Philip with Simon Magus. Amen? Do you see the point? Here's a man that had more giftings and potentiality than Simon Magus did, and he just willingly served the church. And God put his approval on Philip, whereas Simon Magus is told by Peter. Peter says in the 22nd verse, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray to God. If perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then, then answers Simon and he says, pray for me. Now, I'm not here to, you know, be overly harsh on Simon, you know, unnecessarily critical. But I think it's a legitimate point. Peter said to Simon, you repent and you pray. And Simon says, no, you pray for me. It reminds me of Saul saying to Samuel, honor me among the people. You'd have to go back to see that incident in the Old Testament. But I'm thinking of it as I'm speaking to you right now, because this again is the disposition of someone who is always calculating and always trying to gain more in one way or another. And somehow they think that this is what godliness is all about. And Paul says, no, no godliness, just simply serving Jesus, just being saved, just the wonder of belonging to God and being content with that. That is real riches. It's amazing that this craving that Simon Magus had is 
so easily associated with the way in which the world works, it's amazing that, unlike Demas, he wasn't even embarrassed to think about money and what money could do for him. He went right to Peter and John and said, here's some money, give me the power. He wasn't embarrassed. And what I'm sharing with you now as we conclude this sub-point A good principle for all of us to work with is think about the thing that has your interest and your focus and your efforts. Think about the craving you're working with because not all cravings or interests are evil. So think about the craving and ask yourself, is this in the world? I mean, there are some cravings that are in the world that are just sinful by definition and that's all there is to it. But I'm saying that because the scriptures tell us that everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of of life, it's not of the Father. It's of the world. It is a sinful craving. And I'm saying to you that you can pray before the Lord as you're searching your own heart, as you're reflecting on your life and what you want to do with your life and where you want to go and how you're going to get there. And you can ask yourself, is this craving in the world? Is this what we see in the business world? Is this what we see in the political world? Is this what we see in social media? Is this what adulterers do? Is this what the wealthy do? Is this what the rock stars do? If your craving is in the world, start there and say, well, yeah, it actually is in the world. Now think down deeply about the nature of how it's manifesting in your life and cry out to God to help you to see, is this a remnant of a root of all evil a desire for gain and attention in me that hasn't been crucified? Because if you don't crucify it, brothers and sisters, you'll never be content in just being a Christian. So I bring you then to another heading, and that is be content to contend for the faith. Verses 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God... Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." It's so wonderful the way in which Paul distinguishes Timothy from those that we have just spoken about in the ninth and 10th verses. Those that will be rich, those that are driven by the love of money, the Demas, the Simon Magus, the popular preachers, or at least a certain style of popular preacher that is out there that needs the attention, they need the wealth, and they propagate this idea. Juxtaposed against that sort of individual, Paul gives Timothy this wonderful appellation, man of God. That's who we need to be, content to be men and women of God. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. That is to say, as Jesus teaches us, you have to make a distinction. You have to decide what you're going to pursue, what master is going to drive your will. You have to flee this kind of orientation. You can't just fiddle around with it. My dear brothers and sisters, you truly have to flee it and crucify it so that then you can follow after not money, not advancement, not your name, not fame, not gain. Follow after godliness. Follow after the example of Christ. And here's one very useful 
calling that you can characterize yourself by. You can sign up for this. I don't know that you really get drafted into this in the sense that it's against your will. If you're a believer, you automatically, or at least you should, you are signed up like the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. This is something that everyone who is a true believer must participate in God's battle. So you are, I defend the faith. You're part of the IDF just by being a citizen of heaven. And that time that you are within that calling is until Jesus calls you home or catches you up to his throne. In other words, against all of these other desires that some have to be rich and they will to have this or that. Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on the riches of eternal life. And I want to say a couple of things about this commitment to fight the good fight of faith. That to simply be in this army, to enlist, if you will, in the Christian fight of faith. When you come into the Christian religion, when you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, to see yourself as a soldier in God's army, that you're here, not for your own pleasure and luxury. You're here because there's a battle going on and you're going to take up your weaponry and you're going to perfect your skills and you are going to fight the good fight of faith until this battle is won. And if you have your eschatology down well, you know that this battle is not going to be won until Jesus returns. So you're in it for the long haul. You need to endure on to the end. And I'm saying to you that just simply to enlist in this army is to move away from self-centered living that gains for oneself in this life. Even if opportunity comes your way, you take those things and you turn them back into the service of the battle that you're committed to. Listen to the language of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Thou therefore, Timothy, endure hardness. I'm not against purchasing a hammock and putting it between two trees and having some lemonade and listening to some nice Christian music. We need to come apart sometimes, as they say, so we don't come apart. Notice he didn't say, get a hammock, kick back, you're saved by grace. God will never deny you no matter how you live your life and just enjoy the Christian experience now. He says endure hardness. And the Greek term that is used here is kakopatheo. It is once again a compound word from kakos, which means wrong or bad. Actually, it's adverbial, wrongly or badly. Joined with pascal which means to suffer. I think that's important. That's why I give you these meanings when we deal with verses that have these kind of nuanced thoughts to them that are worth pointing out. He's saying, endure hardness. You might say, well, what, what would hardness look like? It means to sometimes suffer wrongly, unjustly, be dealt with unjustly, because that's the nature of this warfare. This warfare is against evil accusers the chief of whom is Satan himself. This warfare is a warfare in which you are misunderstood and misused and injustice is visited upon your life. And he says, endure this hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Isn't that the language, dear brothers and sisters, of one who is seeking godliness instead of gain? Isn't praying and confessing and having your speech with covetousness for the things of this world, which is not to say that you don't pray for God's provisions and blessings. 
We should be anxious in nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known unto God. I said last Sunday, I'll say again, I do not embrace, nor do I teach, nor do I support the gospel of poverty. That is not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying you have an orientation within your spirit to fight this good fight of faith. And whatever the Lord does in your life in terms of financial and material blessings you put to the service of his kingdom. That's what I'm talking about. That is the kind of godliness that is great gain as opposed to just seeing your bank account numbers going up and up and up and your additions going out and out and out and maybe even your church is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because you found different ways by which to gain members of the church while perhaps you compromise godliness in the commitments that you're preaching. So first of all, just to enlist in this spiritual warfare means you don't entangle yourself in the affairs of this life. You use them, but you don't get wrapped up and be used by them. But then if you really do fight this good fight of faith, listen to what he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Yea, and all that will Will what? Will be rich? As it says in verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6? No, it's not what he's talking about here. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They will suffer being pursued. The significance of that, incidentally, is the persecution that Paul speaks about here is from a Greek word that means to pursue. The word that means persecute in Greek also means to pursue. And in this verse that I've just read to you, where he says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness. It is the exact same Greek word that is translated persecution in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. You need to put the kind of pursuit into godliness that your persecutors are coming against you with. You need to stay on it and keep pursuing it. They might be pursuing you and you have it in your heart not to be belligerent, not to be sassy back to them, but have it in your spirit. I'm going to pursue godliness. You might be chasing my tail, but you are the tail and I'm the head and I'm pursuing godliness. Chase me if you must. Catch me if you can. But I'm pursuing godliness and when we get to the pearly gates, you won't be able to follow me any further. We come now to verses 13 through 16 and we get this exhortation. Be content to confess Christ. This is a part of what it is to be content, to simply be a Christian. Be content to confess Christ. Verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times... He will show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Well, it's a wonderful God that we are to be confessing, isn't it? As he relates to us in that doxological conclusion to this section. He is saying to Timothy, Timothy, whatever your experiences are, make sure you confess Jesus Christ. And if you have it in your mouth and in your heart and in your commitment, no matter what they're doing to you, no matter what your experiences are, no matter what hardness you have to deal with, if you can confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, I say to you, lift your hands on high and give out your own doxological worship 
to the King of Kings, the everlasting one who in his time will show the rightness and the wonder of this Christ that you are confessing. Perhaps it would be good for us since he brings Pilate into the conversation to think about what was Jesus' confession before Pilate. I'll give you just a portion of it as it is found in John chapter 18. We won't work through the whole series of events that Jesus experiences when he is arrested. Much of it you heard in today's Bible reading earlier in our service. But in John chapter 18, beginning with verse 33, we read, Then Pilate entered into the praetorium, the judgment hall, as the King James has it, essentially the governor's official residence. He entered in again and he called Jesus and he said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? And here begins Jesus' good confession before Pilate. Jesus answered him, saying, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? The beginning of Jesus' good confession is he stands ready to share the faith with a sincere inquirer. Essentially what he is saying is, Are you asking this because you yourself are interested? Or are you just working from the narrative that was fed you the scandalous charges against me, which is all mixed and wrapped up with this version of me claiming to be the king of the Jews that has no nuance, no prophetic attachment, no biblical presentation to it. Isn't it wonderful, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has this response to Pilate? If you're interested in knowing the truth and you have a sincere question, I'm right here in court. I'm right here in the police precincts. I'm right here on the street. I'm right here having been knocked down on the ground. And if you're asking me sincerely, I'm ready to witness to you. What is he doing? He's content to be a Christian. He's content to be the Messiah. He's content to do his ministry. He's just content to be Christ. And Christ witnesses to the truth. And he's saying, Pilate, are you asking this because you sincerely want to know? Because if you are, then I'll tell you. I'll try to explain it to you. Unfortunately, Pilate isn't interested. Pilate basically says, what? Do you think I know what I'm talking about? He says, am I a Jew? I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you're the king of the Jews or could be the king of the Jews. I'm not asking this because I have any understanding or any commitment in this. I'm just saying what others are saying. That's too bad. He was right there to be ministered to by Jesus. He says, your own nation... And the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What have you done? And here's the second part of Jesus' good confession that we will look at that Paul was referring to. Jesus answered and said, I am content, Pilate, to be a Christian. Now that I know that you're not seeking a personal understanding of who I could be in your life. I could be your Lord and Savior right now, Pilate. But now that I know that that's not why you're speaking to me, now that I know you are simply relating to me as a civil authority dealing with me unjustly, then my answer to you is this. My kingdom is not of this world. My gain is not in this world. I am content to be a Christian because what is entailed in this remark, my kingdom is not of this world, as he goes on to say, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but I'm content to be the Christ to be a Christian in this age and fulfill the ministry that I must and this time prior to my glorification and the actual presence of my kingdom, the parousia. I'm saying that if you're hearing what he is stating, he's saying, Pilate, in so many words, of course I know I am the king of the Jews, but I'm not trying to wiggle out some way to get some of that kingdom power and that advancement and that acknowledgement and, and that recognition right now. I'm content 
to have this position now, my kingdom, my riches, my advancement, my recognition is not of this world. And I'm fully aware of that. I know that if it were, all of this would be very, very different. I would not be kneeling on a highway as you are putting cuffs on my hands and then carrying me like an animal into your police cruiser, as was a pastor from Canada who was arrested just the other day. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm content to be a Christian. That's the good confession that Jesus witnessed before Pilate. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And he is saying, don't you lose the confession of that Christ. My brothers and sisters, you remember your Lord and Savior who said before the rulers and the authorities, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to win power from you. I am here to testify to the power of God, who in his time will show who is the only potentate, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it's not quite yet. You might remember that the third beatitude does not say that the rich will inherit the earth. Kenneth Copeland tells you that. And a number of other deceivers in one way or another tell you that. But Jesus said, the meek inherit the earth. Remember also with me that in 1 John chapter 3, we are told that the world does not know us because it did not know Jesus. In verse 2 of John chapter 3, the Bible says, Beloved, you are now the Son of God, just like Jesus was before Pilate. You are now the Son of God. He was then the King of the Jews. But it didn't appear that that was the case. But it does appear what we should be. It does not appear what we are, but it does appear what we should be. He goes on to say, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What should be appearing from us is a good testimony of Jesus Christ. We should be confessing Christ and content to confess our Christianity, content to be associated with Jesus. Amen. Because the Bible says, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Well, I do hope you see the significance of that point. What if you were to gain the whole world, but lose your tongue? When Paul is exhorting Timothy to follow the example of Christ, who, in spite of whatever his experiences were, he maintained a good confession. He is reminding us that it is possible to seemingly come into a relationship with God and yet to lose your tongue when it really matters. It's interesting the way we see this occur in Peter's life. Because in a very short space of time, Peter went from a saving confession to a damning contention right within the context of his relationship with Jesus. And I will just mention what occurs with Peter briefly because you know the account, but I will emphasize that what's working in Peter's life is he's thinking that godliness is known only by manifestation and the demonstration of your power and your victory over all your oppressors. It's not known by reduction. It's not known through crucifixion. I'm referring, of course, to Peter's confession in Caesarea Philippi when Peter made a good confession, a saving confession, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But then he turns around when Jesus begins to speak about what the, in his case, we could say this Christ's life will experience, the Christian life will experience. Jesus begins to explain what that would be, and he loses his good confession. He takes Jesus and he begins to rebuke him in saying, no, this can't be unto you. You belong to God. You can't be dealt with this way. You have to advance and the world has to see your power. And Jesus takes him aside 
and says, as Paul does in a certain sense, no, Peter, no, you suppose that gain is godliness. And the only way that godliness can be manifested is by gain and more power and, and, and success and those sorts of things. He says, no, Satan will use that against you if you believe in that doctrine. Get thee behind me, Satan. For he would seek to use that against me as well, effectively is what Jesus is stating. He says you need to lose your life in the subsequent Words that he goes on to say he turns. I'm giving this to you out of Mark's gospel in the 8th chapter in the 34th verse. He calls the people on to him with his disciples also. He says, anyone who will come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to be reduced and take up your cross. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. You need to lose your life so that you can gain it. And then he goes in the 38th verse, he goes on to say, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, in this flesh and fun oriented generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What I'm saying to you is Jesus is speaking about, as he says in this whole discourse, if you gain the whole world, but you lose the strength of your spiritual walk with God, then you may find that you come to the place, as Bunyan illustrates Demas, you may come to the place where you are not able to be content to simply confess Christ. This is very truthfully a deep concern, dear brothers and sisters. Now with Peter, I have shown you very briefly that Peter makes a saving confession in Jesus Christ and then turns right around and effectively denies the Christian life. Effectively says for Jesus and says for himself, if this is what the Christian life entails, I'm not going there. I'm not confessing the cross. I, I'm not going to confess the name of Jesus if my life is threatened, if my property is threatened, if my happiness and joy and freedom is threatened. And Jesus in that context says, if you gain the whole world, dear believer, be careful. Where your heart is at, you might be gaining more and more of the world, but are you following after strength in Christ and godliness? Because if you gain the whole world, but you lose your confession, you lose your ability to confess Christ if God allows persecution, then Jesus says in this very context, then I will be ashamed of you. You will have gotten all these riches, but you will have lost the riches of his kingdom. Listen to the language of Paul, beginning in the 17th verse of 1 Timothy 6. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. We end these studies with this final exhortation. As I just stated it to you, we, dear brothers and sisters, need to be content to be charged. The reason why I say that is because Paul charges Timothy to charge any within the religious world that he encounters 
who are rich in this world, that they be on guard against the high-mindedness with which we began this study, this epistemological greediness that is not listening to the way in which the Spirit of God is striving against the lusts of the flesh, they don't consider that these concerns would relate to their lives. Command them that are rich in this world. In other words, it's on my heart to say, charge the United States of America. Charge the average American Christian person who, relatively speaking, is rich in this world, to be on guard against this epistemological self-sufficiency, this mind that has been developed at the hands and thoughts of men and not in submission to the Word of God. Charge them. Don't be high-minded. Do not trust in uncertain riches. Because those riches are, as we just said, uncertain. They may be taken away. Make sure that your faith is in the living God. Not in the abundance of things that you have. Find your life in heaven. Find your life in God. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. But do you not see with me the emphasis of where this enjoyment is is in the eternal life. It is what you get when you lay up in store. Not lay away in the stores, but lay up in store in the heavenlies for themselves. A good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. The 20th verse says, Oh, Timothy, keep these commitments. Don't listen to those who have a science and understanding that isn't worthy of the name. Some propagate this and they have erred concerning faith, trusting God, believing in the eternal rewards and being satisfied and content to simply have that as their prospect of joy and reward. Oh, brothers and sisters, again, I'm not saying that the Lord won't bless our lives and provide for us now. But I'm saying we need to learn to be content to be a Christian. We need to learn how to be abased as well as how to abound to always and in every situation to therein be content. And I'm just finishing because it's on my heart to finish with this statement that we have to allow ourselves and not get offended. Be content for the Spirit of God to speak to us in a way that we aren't used to hearing. Charge them. Charge this American church that is rich in this world. You better get your priorities straight. You better sort out your heart and your affection because if God allows your relative wealth to be taken away, will you still be able to confess Christ? Or will you deny Him under such circumstances? God will give you things richly to enjoy, but you better lay up in your heart the riches of heaven as the focus of your enjoyment so that you can obey the 18th verse. Your life should be characterized by doing good, by being rich in good works, by distributing, by communicating, being ready to give, willing to share. Allowing our hearts, dear brothers and sisters, to be charged in this way, to make sure there isn't covetousness in our relationship with God, that in whatever wonderful ways God blesses us and fulfills His promises, it isn't intertwined with covetousness, brothers and sisters. We need to hear this and not be high-minded. Charge them. Command them. Do not trust in these uncertain riches. Make sure you get your priorities right so that you can be content simply to be a Christian.